Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. Okay. So I'm a guy in my mid-20s. I've noticed there's usually a balance of things in life. Not for us addicts, I'm thinking, but anyway, anyway, in regards to sexuality, I feel like the far left would be sexual addiction and the far right would be sexual anorexia. How would you describe healthy sexuality for singles who want to wait for marriage? Also, my body has been really feeling the urge to have sex, but that's currently not an option. It doesn't feel like a usual trigger. It feels like my body really just wants a release. Any tips on how to go about this urge? That's a great healthy sexuality question. It is. They're both. And notice that this man's in his mid-20s. So this isn't someone, if someone 45 was asking that question, I probably would answer it a little bit differently. Um, So I think you're right. Um, In terms of sexual problems, not just sexuality, sexual problems, sex addiction is at one end and anorexia is on the other or whatever you want to call that. So I wouldn't say that's in a balance for healthy people. I don't think either one of those is particularly balanced. It doesn't mean that when someone dies or you have this, you know, you have a car record thing, you don't feel like having sex. That's understandable. Um, and sometimes when you're dating someone and they're really exciting and new, you want to have a lot of sex. So, you know, I think you can have a lot of sex in certain circumstances or not a lot of sex in other circumstances and be perfectly healthy. But when it gets to the sort of the needle moves too far to the right and then you just stop for years or the needle, move, needle moves too far to the left and you're having sex five times a day, either one of those is an extreme of a problem, not just extremes of sexuality. Um, the other thing is um, just about sex. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you're a sex addict, and I don't know if this person actually is a sex addict or not, from what I can see, um, first of all, you get to wait till marriage. You can wait as long as you want. Um, no one is required to have sex, and no one is required to have sex in certain circumstances. You get to do whatever is right for you and your partner. So, if you ask me how to describe healthy sexuality for singles who want to wait for marriage, I would not say that oral sex or hand jobs are healthy sexuality for people who want to wait. You want to wait, you wait. Um, so, and Tam and I will describe sex as anything that you would not want a four-year-old child to see in a public park. So what else can you do? You can kiss, you can hold, you can hug, you can stroke each other's hair, you can do all kind of romantic and intimate things that may make you want to be sexual, but that is the kind of intimacy that makes sex better when you finally get to it. Um, as far as a release, like anyone in their mid-20s, any male in his mid-20s is like, you know, go more than a few days and your body just says, oh my God, where's the sex? It's part of the testosterone that we release, especially at that age. So, um, and just to say something about age-related testosterone, those men who are 50 and older probably don't get morning erections anymore because your testosterone levels aren't the same as they was were when you were 20. Um, but when you're younger, you have morning erections all the time because that's how the body works with testosterone. You release the most of it in the morning. So um, as far as feeling that you have to take care of something, if you don't like masturbation or masturbation is not acceptable within your spiritual beliefs or whatever that is, then I say, don't worry about it because your body will take care of itself. And, you know, just like young teens, if they don't know anything about sex, but they have a wet dream, what we call a nocturnal emission, that's your body saying, whoops, I got to spill some of this out. <laughs> you got to get rid of some of this. And so you don't have to worry about acting on it. The fact that you feel that way seems very normal and 
typical for someone your age who's involved with someone and wants to be sexual. Um, but I think your body will take care of itself if that is your concern. Um, nothing's going to fall off. Nothing's going to break. Uh, nothing's going to stop working because you don't have sex for a while. Uh, your body will take care of itself. So there, those were three questions in one, Tammy. Yes. Well done. Okay. So my husband of one year is a porn addict in recovery since 2019. I discovered his porn in 2018. Since then, I'm constantly triggered when I see him look at other women in public at beaches or during sex scenes on TV. I'm also a sex and porn addict trying to recover. And I find myself fantasizing constantly about him cheating with these other women and seeing seeking porn with women, I think he'd be attracted to. How can I get past these triggers and fantasies and obsessions since he hasn't been active in his addiction for over two years now? So I, I think this is very typical. I, I think every spouse probably for years and years is going to feel uncomfortable when your man or woman walks down the street and they see someone. Um, now, they might have done this before you found everything out. And then it was like, oh, that's just girls being girls or guys being guys or, you know, they're looking a little longer or maybe they look longer than you like. But, you know, they blow it off as not being a problem. But once it comes out that there is an addiction and it is and you've been betrayed, then every time we even go like this, you're going to wonder what we're thinking. I mean, that's just normal and healthy. Um, I want to say one more thing uh, about this. Oh, I just want to say one thing. Tammy, if you don't mind mentioning it, I would really appreciate it. We just started an online series for porn addicts. And I think it's something we're going to be doing regularly. Yes. So can you just say a little bit about that? Because it's a real challenging issue for some people. Yes, and it's, a, and it's unique. So we've had the, the Sex Addiction 101, Level 1, 2, and 3 work groups. And we have another one starting in October. However, we had a a core group of people that were struggling to relate to sex addiction because they didn't act out with other people. It was truly all online, you know, um, uh, porn addiction, cam girl, cam boy, but not, not acting out with another person, no hookups, no affair partners, those type of things. So, so we started a group. It started last Saturday and we've, we will start another one in October. We've already had a discussion about that nice. so you'll see that up. on seek yeah on seeking integrity.com uh, you'll you'll find those work groups we have a number of work groups um those are facilitated live facilitated so you're not just watching a video um and they're working through there's homework and there's you'll have a foundation of recovery on which to build so so i for those of you that that's you know that you're looking for more structure you're looking for more education that's a great fit low cost um, you know, options. So, right. um, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, we won't talk much about our courses. I'll just simply say part of the reason that I designed them is because you don't get this piece in, in, in outpatient therapy. A lot of the lectures and interactions we give and homework and all that are the kind of work that goes on in residential treatment, which just doesn't happen when you meet someone for an hour a week. So doing education, uh, doing homework, uh, meeting as a group to talk about what, what y'all think about this and how it works into your lives. Uh, that's the purpose. Uh, you can't do therapy online, just so you know it, but you can do education. So anyway, thank you, Tammy, because I'm really excited about that stuff. And I appreciate your talking about it. Um, what's our next? No, no, question? no. I, we have to finish this one. So there's a whole other oh, chunk of this. Sorry. <laughs> 
he gets distracted. So I want to go back to here's here's what I picked up on the most. So he's working on his recovery. It sounds like he's doing what he needs to do. But what I hear is you are a sex and porn addict and you're struggling because um, uh, I'm also a sex and porn addict trying to recover. And I find myself fantasizing about him cheating with these other women. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of I'm well, no, I'm not. I, what I felt was that I would love to have you engage more in your recovery because I think the more you focus on what you need to do to take care of you, the less you'll be triggered by what he's doing or what he's not doing for his program. It's like two people in AA, you, you know, yeah, you need to support each other, but you, at the end of the day, you got to take care of your own recovery. And um, so, so there's a, we were talking about resources. There's a free drop-in group for women um, on Tuesday nights. And Lacey Bentley um, leads that. There's a core group of women who are sharing and their peer group um, supported. So they continue to support each other beyond that Tuesday night group. That's, that's a unique. Free. Yeah, that's free. That's a unique group, but it's like, it's much needed. So, so I would encourage you to do that, but I don't know what else you're doing, doing for your recovery. Um, but, but I feel like, you know, all those trigger things, uh, you know, are putting you in a more vulnerable place. And, and I really encourage you to work on what you need to do to take care of you. Yeah, I want I Tammy, you're so right. And I wish I brought that up a few minutes ago because you beat me to it. <laughs> because I, you know, sometimes when I'm fantasizing about what my partner might or might not do, it's really like a projection. You know, sometimes, and I want to just explain that sometimes I might be really angry at you. And well, I do this with my husband all the time. I'm kind of bored. I'm not sure what we should do tonight. And I turn to him and say, What should we do tonight? Rather than, in other words, I think that my confusion about the evening is actually coming from him. And so we project our thoughts and feelings onto someone else. I do it with my dog. (laughs) My dog has been ill and a friend of mine has family therapy issues. And so, I mean, sorry, physical issues going on, a family member. And I've been looking at my dog lately. Oh, poor baby. And and I realized that's where the feelings are about this family member that I love. I'm kind of putting them on the dog and saying, is he going to be okay? And I'm worried. And so what I'm saying is, is that while you were this is still keeping you active in your addiction. And it may, I'm just curious, like, first of all, you're in these fantasies. Is that what you, is that congruent with your recovery? And are these really fantasies about your spouse doing something with someone else? Or is it really something you're cooking up in your head? Because again, as Tammy said, I think you don't right now know the difference between what's going on with you and what's going on with your partner. So um, I think you focusing on you will give you a lot less reason to obsess about him unless he's doing it without any kind of recovery in which anyone would obsess. So thanks, Tammy. That was good. You're welcome. So um, anybody who's new to the group, please keep your questions in the um, Q&A. We don't pay attention to the chat because we've got lots of questions. So the next question, Dr. Rob, is how often are sex and porn addicts also sociopaths? Well, first, I have to describe what a sociopath is. Um, So sociopaths... I don't want to spend too much time, but I sort of have to. So I want to explain narcissistic people because I am one. And so I can explain to you a little bit about that. Um, my, my camera's dirty. Oh, that's awful. Okay. So narcissistic people. Care about their lack, cameras. Clear clarity. Exactly. So. <laughs> um, they, we lack empathy. 
So when I go and do something, I'm not necessarily thinking about how it's going to affect you. I don't have empathy. Like if I wanted to go buy a new car and I saw one I wanted and we couldn't really afford it. And I just said, I'm going to buy it because I really like it. I would be lacking empathy for how you might feel my spouse about our finances, or maybe you wanted something to say about a car, you know, whatever, but that's the one I wanted. And so it's very narcissistic, but narcissists have a, uh, or narcissistic people as are all addicts. I can explain that in a minute. Narcissistic people, um, uh, what did I want to say about that? When you find out, when we find out that we have disappointed you, that we have hurt you, that have really let you down, we feel bad about it. And that's the gift of being narcissistic in treatment is that I cannot treat anyone who doesn't have motivation. And most times the motivation for people coming to Seeking Integrity is I'm in serious trouble with someone I love and I don't know how to make it better and I need you guys to help me. Um, I was going to say something else about it. But that doesn't mean they're sociopathic. In fact, it's unlikely that they are because they are saying, I feel bad about this. Now, granted, when you're narcissistic, you feel bad about yourself. Like, I wish I hadn't done this. I'm a terrible person. Didn't I love my spouse? What is my spouse going to think of me? You know, that's all very narcissistic remorse because real remorse sounds like I can't imagine what they're going through. I can't imagine what their challenges are. I can't imagine what my wife is going through. So real empathy and compassion is feeling what they might be going through instead of being worried about how everyone's going to look at me or how I look at me. But nonetheless, nar nonetheless, narcissistic people can be brought to feel badly about what they've done, and then they really want to work to make it better. Um, they also highly value their relationships, and we have a, pretty much a lot of fear of abandonment as narcissistic people. And so uh, we work very hard to not make sure you don't leave and we make it up to you and we make it better and all that because we don't want another partner. We don't want another family. We want to be with you, even though we haven't acted like it. That's what we want. But sociopaths are different. So the difference is sociopaths lack empathy. They can go out and buy that car and spend the money and not really notice until you get upset. But when you get upset, a sociopath doesn't say, oh my gosh, I think I did something wrong. A sociopath says, oh, well, you got upset. You know, if that's your problem. And, you know, I can play with the finance however I want. And you know what? If you really don't want it, I'll find somebody else to live with. In other words, sociopaths lack the connection to feel remorse. They may act remorseful, but that doesn't mean they genuinely feel it. And so sociopaths tend to be able to do whatever they want, whenever they want it, just like an addict. But when they have consequences, they don't say, oh, my God, I need to change. They say, how can I change the things out there? So a sociopath will say, I need a new family. I need a new spouse. I, you know, I need it. You know, they are not looking at them as being the problem and they never will. So I cannot treat sociopaths. I think by the way, to, to a number, Tammy, seeking territories when open, it'll just about be three years in the spring. So I would say in the couple hundred people we've seen or a hundred something people we've seen, I've probably seen two or three. So real sociopaths. So I would say, you know, two or three per hundred, maybe something like that. Psychopath I, is another I bet word it's even... for it. Yeah, I bet it's even less than that because we're seeing high acuity often, not always, but, you know, some of the cases that we are seeing, you know, they've been to, you know, many other programs and many of those we can help, but some of them, you know, we can't, I want to back up too, because you talked about addicts and narcissists, an addict, yeah, I, you know, people call all the time, they go, my spouse is narcissistic. I'm like, yes, in active addiction, all of us are narcissistic, but we can learn if we get help, you know, so we don't have to continue with that. But as you're saying, a sociopath, you, you, you don't, you learn to manipulate the situation, but you don't learn to have empathy. You don't learn to change how you're doing things. 
I, I also think that sociopaths tend to do a lot more profoundly hurtful and selfish things than most sex addicts because they really don't care how anybody feels about it. They're just going to move on if you create a problem. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me about sociopaths, and we'll stop in a second, the more severe ones, the ones who are really violent and you know rob banks and kill people and stuff, they like jail. I don't know if I told you that, Tammy, but they're perfectly no. happy in jail because they get fed and they have a place to sleep and people talk to them and they don't have to do anything. One of the big key features of a sociopath is they want to latch on to other people to take care of them. And they want, mm. we recently had someone who, well, I recently did a consultation and Tammy sets me up to do some of these consultations live with couples or individuals. And I was doing a consultation which, with someone who was clear, I thought really clearly a sociopath, because no matter what we talked about, he didn't regret it. He didn't feel bad about it. He blamed his spouse for it. And as Tammy said, I want to say one more thing about narcissism. All addicts are narcissistic in active addiction because, and this is the whole point of 12 step and stuff is to turn our faces, turn the mirror against ourselves and see ourselves clearly. Um, but all, if you think about a heroin addict who will abandon his family, you know, and financial obligations to go use heroin, he or she may come back to that family and work three jobs to make sure everybody's okay when they get sober. That's a narcissist or an addict. Sociopath would say, who cares? They'll figure it out for themselves. Okay. Next question. Hello. I separated from my addict husband after 37 years of marriage. I only found out five years ago and it was hard to leave him, but I did. I live peacefully now, but after almost two years without him, I still feel so sad sometimes. Grief is tremendous. Anything you can recommend reading? Should I start dating? I feel lonely. I don't miss him, but I miss the marriage I thought I had. Perfect. I, I say that all the time. Grieving the loss of the marriage you thought you had. Grieving the loss of the partner you thought you had. Grief gr grief is real. And, and I honor that you're stepping into it. You're not you know, trying to shove it on a shelf and go on your merry way, you're going, you're owning it. So thank you for being here. And I would say good for you for leaving. <laughs> I think, you know, I work with a lot of spouses who've been married. I mean, really, it's unbelievable Tammy, how many clients we get in their 60s and 70s. We have someone who's 71, 73, so, and they've been married 40 years and they come into treatment because their spouse just realized that they have been looking at porn every single day during 40 years and also seeing sex workers, you know? And so, as you can imagine what, I, I know you can imagine what it's like for 35 years of marriage to find out this. And so I really appreciate that there is a spouse here who just doesn't want to put up with it anymore. Um, and I don't think that most of you are in that place, but I have seen people be physically and emotionally abused and they keep saying, how can I make him or her better? As if making them better is going to make your life better. So I'm so glad you took care of yourself. Um, the other piece, and I say this all the time is, that, you know, um, let me say it in this way. Um, I've worked with women who were physically abused, like in shelters and stuff. And they ask all the time, um, why would I still have feelings for him if he beat me up? Why would I have feelings for him, this person that abused me? And the thing is, is that we don't stop our connection with someone because something happened. You know, people die and we grieve them for years. So in a, in, in a sense, what happened to you, first of all, 37 years is a very long time to be married, a very, it's probably at least, probably, I don't know how old you are, but probably at least half your adult life. And so all of a sudden, the mainstay, commitment, dependency, normalcy, stability of your life has shifted. And you're probably not 20 which means the older we get, the harder it is to adapt to change. So all I'm saying is I think you are right where you should be. Uh, anyone who's 
left a 37-year relationship may grieve it their whole life because you did have some things there. It did have meaning to you. We're not black and white. We may hurt you. We may let you down. We may disappoint you, but we still do loving things and we still have lives together that were meaningful. So I'm glad you're at peace. I wouldn't suggest dating. What I'd suggest is some therapy and going to some grief groups or maybe a grief workshop, because what you're doing is grieving and it is tremendous, but it should meet some resolution after two years. That doesn't mean you don't, you stop, you don't stop missing him, but it doesn't mean this longing to connect and this incredible loneliness that you're not together that can go away with some work. Um, the loss will always be with you like a scar, but the immediate pain of it can go can become much less if you are working and being supported by other people in grief about the loss of their relationships. Tammy? So email me, Tammy, T-A-M-I uh, at seekingintegrity.com and I will and ask specifically for the grief resources because I've got a bunch and let me know where you are and I can hopefully help you find a good therapist too. But I would also encourage you, you're lonely. There's other people like, like it doesn't have to be dating, but man, you know, what, are, what are things that you haven't done in a while or have always been interested in doing, you know, I mean, what, what would be of interest to you that you could go connect with people that also have a similar interest, you know, and I think just being out among other people that, you know, share similar interests or, you know, take a class, you, you want to learn something new, whatever. But I think doing something positive like that will, it won't take away the grief, but it will start to shift things. You'll, 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 you'll learn something new. You'll meet some new people. You know, you can have other connections and, you know, have some fun in different ways. I, I think you might find that helpful too. I want to say one more thing about what you said, Tammy, you always spring ideas for me. Um, you know, when I'm married, I don't really have to depend on myself for what we might do or where we might go. Or, I mean, usually I have someone to say, what do you think about this? Or do you have a plan or, but now you're alone. And unfortunately the responsibility that was being carried by the relationship. What should we do? Where should we go? Now you've got it alone. You yourself alone have to find your own recreation, your own activities, and your own family, if you will. And this is what Tammy's talking about. So my first thought was, how many girlfriends are you running around with and, you know, going to a spa or, or, you know, going or in a book club or, you know, how are you relating to other people in ways that stimulate your mind? and emotionally connect you with people. And, you know, the goal of leaving a relationship like this is not to be miserable. <laughs> the goal is to begin to live your life and have fun. So I think first it is working through the grief. And also it's looking around and saying, oh, I like ceramics. Let me take a ceramics class or, you know, whatever that is to start to grow your own life separate from what you had. Next question. Could you explain the concept of eroticized rage? Uh, yes, and concept is the right word because there's really no proof of it, so to speak. But it's the idea that, um, for example, rape rapists are a good example of eroticized rage. If you've ever read about rape, um, you understand it's really not a sexual act. It's an act of control, and it's an act of power, and it's rageful. And so when you use sex to be, for example, I think also uh, a lot of the Me Too people who use authority and power to get people to be sexual with them. And, you know, they're their boss, they're their, you know, that really is rage, a lot of rage too, to take advantage of people in the setting where you are responsible for them. So to me, eroticized rage is simply when someone's sexuality becomes infused with these other feelings that they don't even know about. And then they're acting in ways around their sexual lives that 
don't necessarily make sense. And I think the extreme of eroticized rage would be rape. Next question, is sex addiction more difficult to recover from for someone who ranks higher? I rank 19 on the sex addiction assessment. Those uh, are I would give, typically people ahead. that are in, well, those are people that are inpatient. I mean, that's, you know, that when you get to those kind of scores, th those are, so what are your thoughts? Like I just, I'm sorry, those are, my dog go, my dog's going, <laughs> um, I, you know, I, 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 I agree with Tammy in the sense that, um, you know, the more boxes you check, the sicker you are. I mean, that's how it goes. You know, if you look at an eating test because you're overweight and it says, do you eat late at night? Do you eat in between meals? Do you eat a lot of sugar? You know, and you check all the boxes, you have a more profound problem. If you drink uh, once in a while or you drink every single day, your problem is going to be different. I do agree with Tammy that once the numbers get that high, that I would be worried that I might end up doing things or hurting people in ways that I don't want to. Um, and that is what that test is there for. It is there to uh, kind of wake you up and say, wow, this is you know here, there, or here. And I appreciate your taking it and be honest. I also think that that number means that there's some real work to do. Yeah. But I'm gonna say there's real opportunity. I, I was a high scoring person on the addiction test too. And, um, uh, and you know what, I, like I, with gratitude, like it changed my life because it, it, like Dr. Rob said, it woke me up and I went, I have to do something about this. This is, this is not something I can minimize and pretend it really isn't a problem. This is a problem. You know, I answered the questions I ended up saying there's a lot of problems here. So, so I, really, and you went to treatment. I mean, you I did sure your residential. Did. Yes. Yeah, I did. I, you know, think, cause you know what, the next day I, I was already going, Oh, I learned my lesson. I won't do that again. Denial was right. massive, you know? So, so, so yes, I would invite you again, reach out to me, Tammy, T-A-M-I at seekingintegrity.com or call the numbers on our websites, 747-234-4325 call. And you also may consider, you may be someone who wants to start with one of the classes or a book. I think, you know, part of, I'd love to know about you. And we don't have time today is where are you in the process? You know, because we can recommend and encourage different things depending on where you are. I do want to say to the group though, that sex addiction and eating disorders or sexual disorders and eating disorders are the hardest ones to recover from. Because if you think about someone who's an alcoholic, no offense to me, but you can just stop and never drink again. You know, it might be horrible to do it, but you can get there. If you're a gambler and you compulsively gamble, you can stop going to casinos and all that stuff and still have a great life. But nobody wants to have a great life and never eat again. No one wants to have a great life and be never be sexual again. So these healthy behaviors that run off the rails, we have it's harder for us since we're presented with them every day, eating and sexuality, and they are naturally occurring functions. It's harder for us to, to put that box around them of what is sober, what is not, and live within that box because we're not just putting it away. We have to deal with it every single day. Well, you know, we, we started off the evening, you asked about calories in an egg and and I have, Eggs. I have struggled. Well, no, but I struggled with, um, you know, eating disorder. It was yes. Cause abstinence is really clear with drugs and alcohol. You just, you know, you know what it is, but with food and it's, you know, so pervasive and having to learn. But one of my things is like, I don't calorie count cause that sets my head into a, you know, a very negative place. So I've learned techniques and, and skills, but it's only because of recovery that I was able to do that. So, so there is hope there is help. You know, we can find 
paths through it. So, and there's tons of resources. If you haven't already plugged in on sex and relationship healing, all spelled out, you know, the, that, you know, where this uh, webinar originated, but if you're watching it on YouTube, you know, we have drop-in groups, webinars, podcasts, Dr. Rob's free, sex, free, love free, free. and addiction podcasts. Last I checked has over 800,000 downloads. There's so many resources, including, yeah, I mean, like you name the topic, it's probably on there. So. Well, I wanted to say one more thing about this, which is about the person who wrote it, which is, I think you're asking the wrong question because it doesn't matter to me how bad your pro you think your problem is or how minor you think your problem is. You have to get to work. And so even sitting back and saying, wow, am I sicker than someone else is thinking it's not an action. And an action is, I don't know where I rank, but who cares? I got to get to work. And so rather than looking at where you lie on the scale, as Tammy said, it's a good wake up, good chance to go, wow, I didn't realize where I was. Now do something about it and do it fast before this uncomfortable feeling goes away. Yeah, because denial is a real thing. I, like I wrote a blog about that because it was like, I kept, people are calling me in crisis. That's really, really bad. I need help. Then you start telling them what help looks like. And it's like, well, it's not that bad. And, you know, I don't really need help yet. So. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.